This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. She'll lift you up and empower you to help your child and your family thrive. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. Today I have with me Meg Flanagan, who is a teacher and educational advocate. And we are going to talk about um, how to get help for your child at school and how to advocate for your child and all of that sort of thing that um, most of us need a great deal of help with, unfortunately. Thanks for joining me, Meg. Will you start by just introducing yourself, who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Penny. Um, I'm Meg Flanagan. I'm a teacher, um, special education teacher specifically, um, busy mom of two, and um, an education advocate and coach for parents focusing on school. So unlike a lot of other coaches out there, I focus more on um, exactly what it sounds like. I help parents find success uh, with sanity at school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. That would be awesome. That would be yeah. fantastic. Um, let's just dive in and start with simple ways to figure out what's really going well and where our kids are struggling at school. I know sometimes it's really hard to pinpoint what's really going on. Yeah, it, it really is because there's so many red flags and sneaky flags. Um, you know, especially with kiddos with, you know, ADHD, their behavior is such a tell for them. I know when I've had children in my classroom with ADHD um, and clients of mine with ADHD, I can always kind of tell that something is going wrong. Something is a little bit off um, just by how they're acting um by themselves and interacting with me, interacting with a same age peer or a sibling. Um, So things like, you know, pulling back, withdrawing from normal interaction is a big red flag for me. Or alternatively, and sometimes a little bit more typical with our ADHD children, um, is overacting, being, you know, resorting to the class clown behavior. Um, and I find that that is most often kind of a masking tactic of something else is going wrong in my life. I'm not achieving. I'm really struggling. And so in order to divert attention from this other trouble area, I'm going to focus everything onto this super classic behavior of just, you know, being loud, being rambunctious, being a lot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that behavior really does mask what's actually going on. And I think, you know, um, a lot of times our kids are seen as the bad kid or, um, you know, that that it's really a behavior issue when I think often it's something else underlying that's really causing the behavior issues. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is especially true for those just under the radar kids, the, you know, the kiddos that, you know, they're in, insanely intelligent. They're very smart children, but they're, they're struggling, but they're not struggling yeah. quite enough to trigger that 
RTI process or to trigger a deeper investigation into academics. And what you're going to notice them for is those behaviors, those social issues, the fidgeting, the hyperactivity, the outbursts, the talkativeness, you know, very, you know, teachers think of them as classic ADHD behaviors, but you know, it's also fairly typical for many children without the ADHD diagnosis um, in schools today, simply because of the nature of education in our, in today's society in America. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's really tough for kids with ADHD. It requires a lot of the skills that they don't have or aren't intuitive or that are lagging behind developmentally. So it's a real challenge for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to talk a little bit too, though, about underlying coexisting conditions like learning disabilities. How do we kind of tease out the behavior um, from classic ADHD or from being distracted or um, something more, something different? Um, Because sometimes I know, and it was true for my son as well, refusal to do work was really not oppositional or defiant. It was, this work is too hard for me because I have this learning disability. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this is going to come down to a really strong home and school partnership where you you feel very comfortable, which is not always the case um, with schools and home. Uh, You feel very comfortable, you know, going to the teacher and saying, look, I know that you're seeing this as, you know, my child refusing to do work, but I also want to remind you politely, professionally, mm-hmm. you know, expert in my child to expert in education that, you know, there's a lot of coexisting conditions and could it be this? Could we could we do some observations? And that's what you're going to be asking for. You're going to be asking the teacher and the school to go a step beyond informally before you kind of, you know, get that next formal evaluation done. Right. Of, you know, can you observe my child? Can you tell me where the work refusal is happening? Can you tell me what's happening? You know, the classic uh, antecedent behavior consequence chart, what happened before, what happened during, what happened after this particular target behavior or target um, situation um, can you tell me some more about, you're just going to be doing the, the tell me some more questions. You're going to be kind of teasing it out verbally and hopefully following up with email. Um, yeah. because as we all know, if it's not in writing, it never happened. Yes. So yeah, you, know, you have to really have everything in writing. And so this is going to be, unfortunately, uh, a documenting process of you know, teasing information out of the classroom teachers Um, getting them to be a little bit more um, mindful and purposeful in their observations of your child, getting that data, the hard data from the charts and the the anecdotal observations, and then building your case from there to request additional testing from the school with a formal testing request. And I'm just thinking, could parents give teachers that um, chart, that chart that says what was the antecedent, what was the behavior um, to kind of have so that when something happens, they can document it pretty closely when it's fresh in their minds instead of, you know, asking a day or two later what happened. 
Absolutely. This is actually a chart that I personally, um, when I'm teaching full-time, um, this is a chart that I keep on hand in a folder on my desktop because I'm, as I typically teach um, general education and inclusion class, which, you know, features a lot of those kiddos that the, yeah. those under the radar kiddos um, or the, the two E's and the, the kids that have this and that. Um, so I, I typically, I personally, I know a lot of other inclusion teachers tend to keep an ABC chart ready to go, but it's also super easy to make if you just use Excel or your favorite spreadsheet creator it's just yeah. a three-column chart or even a four-column chart, a fourth chart for notes, and you just label them like before, during, after, and then just put a note on there somewhere of like, hey, we're really looking about you know work refusal. We're really looking about specifically refusal to write. I know that um, that can be super common for um, kiddos with ADHD and um, literacy, lear- uh, reading and writing related um, specific learning disabilities. Yeah. Um, you know, be very specific in what you're looking for. The more specific you can be about your concerns, um, the easier it is for the teacher to, you know, that light bulb to go off and say, oh my gosh, mom just told me yesterday that, you know, one of, one of you know, Johnny's tells for when he's really struggling is this behavior. I'm seeing it right now. Let me write this down. And it's real easy if you're very yeah. specific. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I don't, you know, my son's in 10th grade now and I'm thinking back through the years and the only time that we really looked at it that way before, during and after um, formally was through a functional behavior analysis process one time. Um, And I always thought after going through that process that this is, you know, the way we should look at every behavior, not just something that's so extreme that we have to do this FBA and have a behavior plan. But, um, you know, anytime there's a behavior struggle and, you know, a lot of kids end up getting punished at school for behavior that's really related to their disability because it's not understood. Um, And I always recommend doing an FBA at that point because it very clearly, um, explains that there's kind of an underlying reason for the behavior and outline strategies for everyone to try to use. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer that there is always a reason for any behavior. I mean, yep. there is a reason why, you know, I do certain things, why I twirl my hair, why I cannot sit still for the life of me, no matter what I'm doing. There's mm-hmm. a reason for it. And it's just, it's just about kind of teasing it out and, and really taking a close look at it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had, you know, even colleagues come to me and say, hey, you know, I really, I'm really having a hard time getting, you know, getting Susie to consistently turn in her worksheets. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what's your routine? What is, what is your, what is your prompt to her? What is your, what is your direction? Is there a clear, have you taught her the routine? Have you gone through the steps? Is there a reminder process? Is there a secondary prompt? Is there a consequence for not turning it in that is so natural and so meaningful to this child that it, you know, it, it acts as a deterrent to not turning it in. Um, it's all about kind of looking at all of the sides of it and, you know, where, where you can provide that extra little bit of support. Yeah. Yeah. And that really sets up a very collaborative relationship between parent and teacher too. Um, when you're 
talking about it more scientifically like that. Um, I think it helps in that instance as well. Um, can we talk maybe just for a few minutes? I know that every child is different, but I would love to give parents just some really general ideas of how to help kids with ADHD in the classroom. So things like um, being off task frequently or um, not getting their work finished in the time that's allotted for everyone in the class, um, <clears throat> you know, talking out of turn maybe or, or blurting out or interrupting. Um, I think those are very common issues that a lot of kids with ADHD would have in the classroom. Um, what are your thoughts on those? What can parents kind of suggest that might be helpful? It definitely helps if you know your child's learning style. So for me personally, as a teacher, a lot of times when I, I get to know my students very, very well, I'm, I'm a firm believer. I email parents almost every day. Um, with something positive, hopefully. I try to limit the, you know, the kind of less positive emails to very infrequently if possible. Um, But I try to get to know them inside and outside of school so that, you know, I can bring up, hey, you know what, do you remember that uh, your mom said that you really need to focus on this today because you have soccer practice tonight and you're not going to have time to do this work at home. So let's, you know, let's make sure like that you're, that you're really working on this and just kind of, you know, cycling around. And if mom and dad can come in and um, provide that little incentive, that little insight into the after school life of the child and say, Hey, this is our schedule. This is what, this is what works to motivate him at home. This is what she's into right now. This is what, you know, soccer is really important to her. So any little tidbit I can glean from mom and dad and the child, I will, I will pull that out immediately to kind of like drop in their lap as like a little extra nugget of like, let's do this. Because once you do this, I know that this is coming down the road and you want that thing coming down the road. Right. Yeah. Um, I know my son in first grade had a wonderful teacher and she um, had picture reminders um you know very visual reminders and she was using a few in her classroom at carpet time she would have these laminated picture cards like raise your hand for instance Mm -hmm. on like a tongue depressor and if the kids were really not raising their hands she would you know hold up this picture and then everybody would start raising their hands and Mm -hmm. um she ended up creating the same picture cards on small on a lanyard and you know, for my son, but also for a couple others who were struggling kind of in the same ways, um, she always had these picture cards around her neck and was able to redirect a lot without calling them out, without making them feel like they're constantly, you know, being addressed by the teacher and in trouble and and stuff like that. And it was super effective. Um, you know, I that was the year that we were going through an evaluation and diagnosis and started trialing medication. So I was in the classroom observing probably a dozen times or more that school year. And those cards were super effective um, at redirecting kids without even really calling them out. Um, And the other thing that she did was always just a hand on the shoulder to, you know, remind you what you're supposed to be doing. So those were great things too. Yeah. Um, 
that I yeah. I always use the like the quirky raised eyebrow. One of my one of my students would call it getting teachered. So I, would just, <laughs> I would just give him like a dead eye and just like like raise my eyebrow and just like friend, like give him like the friend look, like yeah. friend, you are, you're not doing the appropriate thing, and then just kind of like give him like a visual or like a pointing like cue, like oh time's almost up, point to my wrist, yeah, point to the board, there's the direct, like just kind of like a quick like only he would notice it because everyone else is working. And right. then, and then he would just come over later and be like, oh, Mrs. Flanagan, you totally got me. You teachered me today in the middle of social studies. I'm like, yeah, buddy, I did. I did teacher you. You're right. <laughs> but just like, like, you know, getting, I think a lot of it is, is just being able to say, hey, my kid responds better to visual cues. And then, and then the teacher can work on, especially in the lower grades, like the, the visual prompt. Um, yeah. I've had, kids with the above the line below the line work so for some of my students and for some of my clients I set it up that you know let's say in math they need to complete problems one through five and that's their must do work and as long as they have completed those five problems they can choose a more rewarding option from the below the line section which might be you know oh. play a game with a buddy or um work read a book for five minutes doodle in your notebook for five minutes and then you go back up and you do the next above the line thing so it's a it's kind of a built-in reward system where you do this you get this you go back up you get to do another thing um but that's really cool i've never heard of anything like that i've never seen it yeah great idea it's 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 really powerful because it gives the child, especially an older child, those middle elementary grades and up, it gives them more of a choice, more of a, like an intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Yeah. And we're always fighting to find a way that we can balance the need for, you know, a child with impulsivity issues to also recognize that, Hey, this has got to be done. And I think the visual reminder of the reward is coming. Just do this right now is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We actually, um, actually in first grade still, we had um, a goal chart that was taped to his desk in a plastic sleeve. And um, it had just two goals that we wanted to work on, you know, our top priorities at first, and had each section of their day at school. So carpet time was one, then, you know, the next lesson, doing seat work, whatever. It was all the way down in different sections. And each time that he met the goal in each time period, she pulled it out of the sleeve, put stickers there. And every day at the end of the day, because this was first grade and they had like treasure box and stuff, um, he got a reward if he got a certain number of stickers. Um, but it was every day. It wasn't, you know, every week like the rest of the class, the, you know, his neurotypical peers, they were working on behavior stuff and they got um, rewards at the end of the week. And for my son, it was the end of each day because, you know, that was what he needed, more immediate reward. And I think we probably went through six different goals or more that school year because he kept doing really well and meeting them and we kept switching them out to something else that we needed to work on and it was super effective um and definitely something you would do in the lower grades and not the upper grades but um one other thing too i wanted to mention one year and i don't remember how old he was um he and a teacher had just a secret signal and he would pull on his ear if he needed a break um 
because he was too old at that point for these picture cards and stuff like that, that um, he still at times got really overwhelmed and, you know, it would fester if he didn't get a break and be able to um, leave the classroom and do something. And that was the signal that, um, you know, I really, I've, I've got to take a walk for a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely done the signal thing with kids for the, you know, the walking break or even incorporating, um, you know, the heavy work, you know, the, the wall yeah. push-ups or just traditional push-ups, being able to do squats with the medicine ball. Um, I think one year I kept a set of like five pound dumbbells under my desk because I had a kiddo that just, he just liked to pick up the dumbbells and just kind of like walk to the water fountain and set yeah. them down and do a couple squats and get a drink and then like wander back in. And it, it worked out really well for him. So, And I think you also touched on a really important point of the continual monitoring of progress when you said you, you know, switched out your son's goals frequently. I think it's really important for parents and teachers to be constantly communicating about where the progress is being made and where maybe it's not being made quite so much so that you can say, well, I'd really prefer, you know, it seems like, seems like fidgeting during story time is really decreasing but I'm, I'm noticing that attention during math is still not quite there yet. So could we phase out the fidgeting goal and replace it with a bigger emphasis on the math goal? And I think having that conversation is super important because it lets everyone kind of be a player at the table. Yeah. Yeah. And that chart came home to me every day. And then, you know, the teacher made sure it got into his folder in his backpack and I would look at it and then just leave it there and send it back for her records. But, you know, every day I got a very clear visual of when he was on task, when he was off task, you know, and so for us at that time period when we were trialing medicine, it was even more helpful because I could see what times of day it was working well and when it wasn't. And, um, you know, being able to then discuss that with his doctor and make um, modifications to his treatment, you know, that was really valuable information. But, you know, on the whole, then you could lay out five of them for the week and say, okay, well, here's where we were this, you know, it was just a very visual representation and very tangible. Um, that was so helpful. Um, so I, you know, I highly recommend that to parents of younger kids where that's um, an applicable thing to do. It, yeah. it was super helpful. Um, and it does take, you know, time on the teacher's part. There's no doubt about it. You know, every um, hour or so she would go to his desk and have to put stickers in. And um, But she knew that it was important and was willing to do it and um, really stuck with it throughout the year for us, which was awesome. Yeah. For older kids, I actually use Class Dojo. Um, and you can set it up. It's typically a lot of times it's used for like a whole classroom. You could even set it up for just, you know, five kids and have their target unwanted behaviors or actions or target wanted behaviors. And then it's literally, it's, it's an app on your phone. And so the teacher, I know that a lot of schools now encourage teachers to, you know, not necessarily be on their phones, quote unquote, like scrolling Facebook, but right. to, you know, use it, use it as a learning tool, or sometimes they'll have a, a connected iPad or a connected device in the classroom for educational use. Mm -hmm. But it's super easy to kind of wander around and 
I would do it sometimes or I would, I would just pick a time for a child and say, okay, every day at 10, 15, I'm going to see what he's doing. And at 10, 15, I would get onto the dojo app and say either the wanted behavior is happening or this particular unwanted behavior is happening. And then it charts it. It just charts it for you. And parents get an, a digital notification. There's a, tech, a messaging system built in. And so at 10, 15, if he was super off task, I could you know quickly text mom and say, hey, mom, like, did he take his meds today? What, like, did he not sleep last night? Like, I, I need, I need a few, I need a few bits of information from you about how it went from 3 p.m. yesterday until you know you left him at school with me today. Right. What was happening, so that I know? Okay, he didn't sleep all last night. Of course, he's not going to be on task today. Like, let's cut this kid some slack. Or he had extra sugar on his cereal this morning because right. he got a hold of the maple syrup and. It's mm-hmm. just it's just happening today. Yeah. Or yeah, everything went according to plan and now the meds are not quite working as well. Yeah. So it's really yeah. great. I wish that every school and every teacher was using that. Um, mm-hmm. It just varies so much across the country how much technology is being used in classrooms and um, even how knowledgeable regular ed teachers are about learning disabilities and ADHD and so forth really varies so much as well. But um, so I think let's talk about um, kind of the next steps. If you're working with a teacher, you're trying different um, accommodations or different strategies in the classroom and things aren't really improving, what then are the next steps for a parent? So all of this stuff, if you're doing all of these things and you're tracking it and you're keeping your, your data, all of the information coming home, all of the stuff from the teacher that says, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And then all the stuff that's also saying it's not working, it's not working. Then you have your data file. And your next step would then to be to call, if your child is on an IEP, to call an IEP meeting and say, hey, look, I know that you guys are all doing your due diligence and it's um, and remembering to keep that polite, professional. Obviously, you want to fight for your child. You want to advocate for your child. But also, this is a team and you need to work as a team. So being super confrontational is not necessarily your best play here to get your child additional things yeah. or additional support. So you're going to want to come in and say, look, you guys are doing a great job. I know you're trying all of these great things, if they are. And say, yeah. it's it just doesn't seem like like the progress we want to see, the progress we expect to see is happening. I'm wondering if something else is going on. And based on all the stuff that you all have sent me, I'm thinking there might be. So I would like to request additional testing in wherever the area where your child is perhaps showing the most struggle. Yeah. Um, and, and it could be a ton of things. It could be, you know, ADHD comorbid with a specific learning disability or with autism spectrum disorder. So those are often cross-diagnosed, misdiagnosed, comorbid. There's a ton of so much crossover with those two categories of disabilities, yeah. you know, yeah. requesting it. If your child in a 504 plan, calling a 504 plan meeting and saying, hey, look, it's becoming very evident that even though you guys are doing your due diligence and you're doing the accommodations, there's some modifications that need to happen, the work shortening, you know, time out of the classroom, whatever it may be, 
um, to help him. So I'd like an IEP and you're going to want to submit these requests in writing. Yes. Again, if it's not in writing, you did not ask. Yeah. Um, so get it submitted in writing, time stamped, date stamped. Um, and if your child is on neither plan and you are have been kind of free floating through the classroom at this point, you're going to follow the same process. Submit a formal testing request. Your best friend in all of this is as much data and information as you can possibly get. Because if the information, if you didn't get the testing done, then you can't get the services in that area because there's nothing connecting your child's need to a service. Right. Yeah. And I would say um, if you have very specific concerns, put those in your request for evaluation to make sure that they are evaluated in those areas. I know a lot of times parents just make a general um, evaluation request or they make a general request. I want an IEP for my child. And, um, you know, what you really need to do is make a request for evaluation and then list your concerns there. Um, because then, like you said, you're documenting that there is pattern here and there's, um, some solid data behind your request, but you're also making sure that they're going to evaluate in those areas that, um, that you're seeing the most concern in. Yeah. And if, if you're honestly not sure which areas to request in, you're going to want to request in the academic area where you are seeing the biggest issue. So for example, math. If your child is literally refusing to do work in math, you would want to request a math evaluation, a specific learning disability evaluation in math. You probably yeah. also want to request an FBA, a functional behavior analysis, a formal mm-hmm. one yep. in math. Um, you know, and and then just kind of branch out from there. You might want to, you know, do an OT or PT request just in case it's a sensory issue. Um, with physically writing, that might be an issue or tapping on the key, the keyboard. I know that a lot of kids um, don't necessarily like the way that the that the key the letter keys feel beneath their fingers or the clicking sound they make. I know that right. that can sometimes be a huge trigger. Um, you know, there's a ton of things, and there's literally hundreds of standardized tests out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it never hurts to, to request like an all-encompassing one, like a Wyatt or a WISC, because those are going to give you a lot of good information about a broad spectrum of areas and needs. Yeah. I think generally, at least in my area, they always do a WISC whenever they evaluate, um, because we've been evaluated multiple times and they always do the WISC, um, but that might be different in other areas. So you know, definitely asking for that. And that's just a, um, that's an achievement test, right? The WISC? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's just a broad spectrum. It has, you can, there's like so many different versions of it. I believe like there's ones where you can, you can pull out certain subsections or you can do the whole thing. There's a ton of different tests that are like that as well. Yeah. Uh, there's whole libraries of them and not every school is going to use the same tests. Yeah. Um, and if they're testing your child again, so let's say you just got an IEP last year and you did the full battery of tests and they gave you the WISC, they can't give you the WISC again within a certain time period. Mm-hmm. So they're going to they're gonna have a backup test that's similar to or a different version of 
yeah. uh, a test that maybe you already, your child already took. Um, so just, you don't need to request it by name, but if you can be kind of specific or we have a concern in math, we have a concern with, you know, behavior, we have a concern with social language, we have a concern with, you know, writing. Executive functioning. Executive functioning. Um, executive functioning is the biggest complaint the, and it's because it's the hardest to test for. It's so It's hard. also the hardest to deal with with school. <laughs> I can tell yeah. you with a child with extreme <laughs> executive functioning deficits, it's, I mean, I think that's the hardest piece. Mm-hmm. Um, not the ADHD symptoms, not the autism. It's the executive functioning that is the most um, detrimental and negatively impacting for my own child. Um, but there are um, rating scales and questionnaires to determine those um, executive functioning deficits mm-hmm. so that can definitely be requested with the school. And I think it's good um, to bring that to the forefront of the minds of the teachers and when you're requesting an evaluation, because a lot of teachers don't know what executive functioning is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we just had last year a um, special ed curriculum specialist who had been a special ed teacher for 25 years before taking this position um, tell me in an IEP meeting that she didn't know what executive functioning was and she was going to have to research it. So, yeah, you know, it's a lot a- of people don't know what it is and how it impacts. And when you have a really bright kid who's super smart and they're not doing well, they think that it's a lack of motivation instead of really looking at executive functioning, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, I think 99% of the time the culprit there. So oh, that's definitely something yeah. I would ask for. And it's such an un, it's almost untapped and untaught. It's just expected that, you know, the teacher's going to say, all right, the blue folder is for language arts and every child is going to automatically remember that. Um, and so I've kind of learned the hard way over the years that even after the first month of school, I keep up a, a color-coded chart of like blue is reading, green is writing, red is whatever. And like, yeah. I literally put it up in the room. And then for my kiddos with the organizational issues we have, I've had kids with literally checklists for everything that I created and just like he had like a ring on his desk of laminated checklists and every day it would be okay, turn it to the, you just got here. What do you need to do first? Oh, put this in my locker, check. All right, great. You finished your checklist. Let's move on to morning work checklist. What do you do first? And just kind of reminding teachers also that you do need to baby step a lot of kids with ADHD through those little, those micro tasks of did you remember to sharpen your pencil? You need to sharpen your pencil before you sit down to do your work. Mm-hmm. Don't get up while I'm, you know, while I'm giving the instructions. Could you wait a moment? The, those little, those little micro moments that so many typically developing children just kind of know inherently. Mm-hmm. They just picked it up over the years. But our kiddos with ADHD have perhaps been looking elsewhere. And didn't quite get that, and or they got it and didn't file it in the right place in their brain. 
right and now they or their working memory is yeah is bad and by the time they get halfway through they've forgotten where they were in it or what they were supposed to be doing or where to look to find the information yeah. so just you reminding teachers you know even after you give a verbal instruction of whatever do the assignment it's really helpful to have a visual you know for littler kids like a literal like picture instruction or for older kids who can read um a written synopsis of what you need to do first next then this yeah is very broken down step by mm-hmm. step simple steps and always in yeah. writing always in writing always in yeah. very clear writing with um very simple language that is easy to access easy to understand because even if you're even if the child is a gifted reader um, and understands complicated language in the moment of trying a panic of like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. They're not going to be able to process the complicated flowery language. So keeping it simple to do problems one to three, read the directions on the paper is much easier than writing out the whole directions. Just giving them that quick prompt of where to look next is really yeah. powerful. Yeah, for sure. I think Anytime you can make a checklist or um, a step-by-step of a process for a child is really valuable um, because that executive functioning piece, you know, for uh, the majority of kids with ADHD, I think really have um, at least some executive functioning impairment um, because it's so encompassing and so many different things, you know, it's um, task initiation and planning and organization and emotional regulation and working memory. And, you know, it's, it's all the things that you use to get anything done. Um, So, you know, that's really a big piece of it. And um, having instructions in writing is um, so valuable for them to kind of um, cope with having that deficit. There's um, a therapist, Holly Moses, who um, has been on the podcast before, and she has two kiddos who are differently wired, and she um, has post-its and note cards all over her house. Like everywhere you go, there's post-its and note cards. And whenever she gives an instruction to either one of her boys, she writes it down and hands it to them because otherwise they will forget or they will get distracted or, you know, and that's just a way to help them to be successful. And that's what we're talking about in school too, is just finding ways that work for kids with ADHD that help them to be successful. And really, ultimately, a lot of the things that are working well for children with identified ADHD work for neurotypical peers as well. So having those extra directions, just because you're not identified with any particular something, doesn't mean that your executive functioning skills are 100% there. I think everyone benefits from having the written reminders, having having, the hand on your shoulder to bring you back and focus some more having the remind the the app the behavior app of this is expected behavior in fourth grade or 10th grade and this is unwanted and just kind of keeping everyone in the loop of where we are behaviorally um just i think just parents and teachers respecting each other and communicating and remembering that you know 
it's not, it's not a game of one, one upsmanship or I know this child better, or I know exactly what is right for this kid. It's about what is right, what is going to help the kid. And if the teacher has to make some compromises, or if you're not getting precisely what, you know, you think is right from a parent perspective, knowing that working together, you're ultimately going to find your way to what is right for your child. And if you can do that with a positive, productive, peaceful relationship, then that's ideal. Yeah, absolutely. We are running out of time. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? No, I think, I think we covered so much. Yeah. And there's so much more, of course. I mean, we could talk about it for years <laughs> to try to cover every little thing, but yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for being here and sharing your insights and wisdom on this topic. I know that there are many parents listening that are really going to get a lot of benefit. Um, you even shared some ideas that I hadn't heard in 10 plus years. So um, I know that there's lots of beneficial information here. Um links to your website and social media and ways to connect with Meg will be in the show notes. And those are at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 052 for episode 52. And um, with that, I thank you again. And I will see everyone on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. If you connected with this episode, please share it on social media. Be sure to visit parentingadhdandautism.com to join the conversation and take advantage of Penny's online courses and summits, retreats, parent coaching, and fantastic bonus content.